another reason that I'm excited is because I get to share with you this morning as we continue our series on Jacob. Uh, Throughout this summer, we have been going through this series focusing on the life and the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob, for those of you who may not be familiar with that particular name, uh, he's a primary character within Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament and then even more specifically the book of Genesis. He's one of the main guys, right? And and Genesis dedicates, the author of Genesis, Genesis dedicates a number of chapters uh, to, to telling his story and the story of his family. And so throughout this summer, we've been looking at his life and trying to figure out, okay, what is there for us to learn? What are those mistakes that he makes that we can avoid, right? What not to do and what are some things that we should do? Now, at this point in our series, at this point in the summer, if you will, we've talked about a lot of things that have taken place during the life of Jacob. And we'll continue to unpack some of those things this morning. But if you're visiting or if you've been in and out of town due to vacations this summer or for whatever reason, uh, you may feel like you're, you're jumping into the middle of this story with us. And if you feel that way, that's because you are, right? I mean, you are very much so jumping right into the middle of things. And that can be tough whenever we have to jump into the middle of a story, right? Nobody likes to watch a movie they've never seen before, right? You're seeing it for the first time and start in the middle, right? No, nobody wants to do that, um, even if you know how it's going to end, every romantic comedy, right? Like, you know how it's going to end, but you, you probably don't, not that I watch those, um, you, you probably don't want to jump into the middle of it, right? You want to know what's going on. You want to know the back story. Now, uh, as we dive in this morning, I don't want anyone to be in the dark. And so uh, allow me to quickly provide you with some, some Cliff Notes style uh, version here, some, some of the recap of the story of Jacob, some of the things that have gone on in his life that we've been talking about this summer. Now, our story truly begins back in Genesis chapter 25. That's where we began early on in this summer talking about the life of Jacob. And in that chapter, we see we're introduced to, actually a few chapters prior to that, actually, uh, we're introduced to this, this guy, Isaac. Now, Isaac is the son of Abraham, and we're familiar with Isaac because he almost lost his life as a kid when Isaac sacrificed him or was going to sacrifice him on an altar. But now Isaac is a grown man, and he has married Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah eventually have twin boys. And the firstborn, his name is Esau. And when he was born, we've talked about how he came out looking red and hairy, right? A living carpet. And he was the favorite son of Isaac, right? Isaac uh, loved Esau. And then you had Jacob, the secondborn, and he came out of the womb literally grasping the heel of his older brother Esau. And Jacob was the favorite of Rebekah. Now, normally in this culture, the oldest son is top dog. He would receive a double portion of the inheritance, and the rest of the kids in that family would take a back seat to him. However, before Esau and Jacob were born, God comes to Rebekah and makes a surprising revelation. In Genesis 25, verse 23, we see it says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. These words of divine appointment set the stage for the rest of our story. 
Now, as the story progresses, we, we see the fulfillment of God's words in Genesis 25, 23, this shift that begins to take place amongst the, their sons in terms of birth order and what that looks like. But not only that, we also see as this story moves on an enormous amount of family dysfunction. In chapter 25, right early on in the story, we see that Jacob coerces Esau into selling him his birthright that would have belonged to the oldest son for food. Esau was extremely hungry, and, and he didn't consider the birthright to be of value, and so he simply exchanged it for a meal. Only a couple of chapters later, in, in chapter 27, Jacob, with the help of his mom, tricks his father Isaac into giving him the blessing that was meant for Esau. And so early on in this story, we see Jacob living up or begin to live up to the meaning of his name, the deceiver. And as you might imagine, Esau isn't walking around with those number one fan foam fingers in regards to his brother Jacob, right? He doesn't really care for his brother all that much. We actually learn that he had made plans to kill his brother, prompting Jacob to flee from his home. And so at the end of chapter 27, Jacob leaves his home and heads to Padan Aram to live with his uncle Laban. And while Jacob is there, Laban gives Jacob a taste of his own medicine. Jacob agrees to, to work for Laban for a period of seven years. That was the price set in order for Jacob to marry Rachel, Laban's daughter. Right now, it's kind of odd. They were cousins, and so that's, that's a little strange for us, but that's how things worked in this period of time. But here's the thing. When the seven years were up, Laban pulled the old switcheroo on Jacob, right? And instead of giving Rachel to Jacob on the wedding night, Laban gives Leah, his eldest daughter, to Jacob. And so in verse, chapter 29, verse 25, we see it written, When morning came, there was Leah. What? Right? Like, what is going on? Can you imagine this guy's surprise? Now, in that culture, there have been veils and stuff, and so it, it wouldn't have necessarily been obvious to Jacob, um, as we can see. But, but this is the situation that unfolds. Now, having been deceived, Jacob agrees to work another seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage because he loved her more. And even after those 14 years goes by, Jacob continues to work for his uncle a while longer. And so now approximately two decades or so have passed since Jacob moved to Padan Aram. And over that period of time, God begins to bless Jacob. And we see that through his offspring, the amount of children he has, but also in, in terms of his material wealth. This guy becomes extremely wealthy. But there also comes a point in time where, where Laban's attitude toward Jacob becomes less favorable. And it's at that time God calls Jacob to return home for the first time in some 20 years. However, Jacob's pretty sure he knows what's waiting for him at home. A brother who wants to kill him. And so in chapter 32, Jacob begins to prepare to meet Esau. And he, he prepares for the worst. He prepares for a massacre 
to take place. And in the following chapter, the brothers meet face to face. Last Sunday morning, Barry, uh, he spoke about this surprising reconciliation that takes place between these two brothers. And if you happen to miss that message, be sure to check out the podcast if you haven't done so already. But now you're all caught up. Whether you've been here or not, whether you need a review or you've missed some of these weeks, now you're all caught up. And so with that, I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles, open up your Bibles to Genesis 34. Genesis chapter 34, certainly you can navigate there on your Bible app. That's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. But before we dive into that particular chapter, uh, one of the verses, or one of the last verses uh, in chapter 33 sets the scene for our message this morning. And so allow me to read to you chapter 33 of Genesis in, in verse 18. It says, After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. And so now we know upon his return where Jacob and his family have settled. They've made camp outside of the city of Shechem. And with that knowledge, we can dive into our story this morning. Chapter 34, I'll read verses 1 through 4 and then jump down to 6 and 7. You can follow along with me as I read. Now Dina, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. Verse 6, Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. And so here at the beginning of this passage, the beginning of this chapter, while we, we see that while Jacob's daughter Dina was out and about, she was violated or raped by Shechem, the son of Hamor, the ruler of this particular region. And while it was an act of lust, and while it was an act of violence, the Bible says that Shechem loved Dina and wanted her to be his wife. But in order for that to happen, arrangements would have to be made between Jacob and Hamor, the patriarchs of these two families. And so in an effort to make a deal, Hamor seeks out Jacob. However, before a deal is even proposed, we learn that Dina's brothers are very upset, and rightly so, by what has transpired. In verses 8 through 12, both Hamor and Shechem make their proposal to Jacob and his family. Hamor talks about the benefits to both families if they intermarry. They talk about this, essentially he says, hey, let's just become one big happy family. We, your sons can marry our daughters and vice versa. We'll all grow wealthy together. This is a win-win scenario. And then it's Shechem's turn. And he has a bit of a different message or proposal, but essentially he says, name your price. Name your price for Dina. No cost is too great. 
If you jump down a few verses, we find the response to Hamor and Shechem's proposal, starting in verse 14. Follow along as I read. It says, They said to him, Jacob's family said to him, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give you our consent, or we will give our consent to you on one condition only that you will become like us by, by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Jacob's family hears the proposal for Dina, and they get hung up on one point, that being circumcision. Now, circumcision is, is a big deal for Jacob and his family. It's a physical reminder of the covenant that God made with them. It's a sign, a physical sign that they've been set apart as God's chosen people. Therefore, giving Dina in marriage to someone who isn't circumcised is simply not an option. However, Jacob's family does outline the terms that would for allow for a deal to be made. In verse 15, it says, We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us, circumcising all your males. Well, Hamor and Shechem like what they hear. In verse 18, it says their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son. Now, as rulers of this particular group of people, Hamor and Shechem get to work on sharing the terms of this deal with their people. And essentially, they begin to make a sales pitch to the other men in town. Hey, fellas, we struck up a great deal with some outsiders, right? The benefits that we're going to reap from this deal are enormous. Not only will we intermarry with one another and become this, this large people, but we're going to get rich, Right After all, in verse 23, it says, Won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? See, we got to remember that Jacob is a very wealthy man. He's bringing a lot to the table. And so Shechem and his father Hamor are intrigued by this deal. And as a result, they're selling this, they're pitching this idea, and then they wrap it up by saying, Hey, all we have to do to complete the deal is get circumcised. So, after hearing the plan, the men of Shechem, the city of Shechem, were in agreement with Hamor and Shechem. Verse 24 says, every male in the city was circumcised. Things seem to be progressing smoothly, right? Everything seems to be going along according to plan. However, when we jump back to verse 13, a verse we haven't read yet, we learn that not everything is quite as it seems. Allow me to read Genesis chapter 34, verse 13. Because their sister Dina had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. You see, clearly, the apple, or in this case, apples, don't fall that far from the tree. Jacob's sons have made a deal with Hamor and Shechem under false pretenses, which is something we've come to expect from Jacob. 
the deceiver. Following the circumcision of the men of Shechem, we see the purpose of Jacob's son's deceit play out in shocking fashion. Let's pick up the story starting in verse 25. Three days later, after this whole town got circumcised, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, I bet they were, two, right? I mean, two, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses." Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and parasites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Isn't this just a heartwarming, lovely, chicken soup for the soul type of story, right? I mean, nothing like a little sexual misconduct, violence, deceit, and plundering to get us encouraged and motivated this morning, right? This, this story's insane. This is absolutely crazy. And it leaves me wondering, what can we learn from this story? My life is nothing like this. Absolutely no resemblance whatsoever. I don't even have brothers, Right? And so how can we apply Genesis 34 to our lives today? <laughs> when I realized this was my passage that I was assigned this morning, <laughs> I was a little concerned about answering these questions. I, I thought, you know, th this is crazy. What can we learn? And so I went to Pastor Chris's office, and I was like, this is a joke, right? Like, this is, this is my passage. And then he said, you wonder why I'm not speaking this Sunday, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, it's like, okay, so where do we go with this? Well, believe it or not, as I, as I was studying this passage, God drew my attention to a number of truths, a number of principles from Genesis 34 that can be taught and applied to our lives. In fact, we don't even have time this morning to address all of them. Therefore, for the next few minutes, I, I simply want to highlight one, one of the truths we should grab hold of this morning. And the truth I want to highlight is that two wrongs don't make a right, a phrase I just made up. Um, <laughs> two wrongs don't make a right. This is what I want to wrap our minds around. I want us to be able to wrap our heads around this morning. Now, of course, the first wrong was committed by Shechem. Clearly, in verse 2, it says he took her, Dina, and violated her. In verse 7, it says Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not 
be done. Verse 31 says, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? You see, Shechem may have expressed his love. He may have expressed a desire to make Dina his wife. But his actions, without question, were inappropriate. One commentary said, even amongst pagan cultures, this type of behavior was unacceptable. And so a wrong, a sin, a crime has been committed. And justice should be done. Shechem deserves to be punished. To let him walk free wouldn't be right. I'd venture to guess that most of us would agree with that. I mean, in theory, that's how our society or our legal system works. Punishment, consequences, follow a crime. In other words, if you do the crime, you do the time. Knowing what we know about chapter 34. It's obvious that Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, felt that justice must be done. And to ensure that it was done, they took matters into their own hands. They crafted a deceitful deal, which essentially left their enemies defenseless. And then they executed justice in the form of mass murder, plundering, and captivity. And so here we see in this chapter their response to this unfortunate, vile situation. Their daughter has been violated. And now we get a look, an inside look of how they responded. They brought about justice. But the question we have to ask ourselves is was justice accomplished? Was, was true justice accomplished? You see, Simeon and Levi may have been able to justify their actions, but justice wasn't accomplished, at least not by God's standards. In his book, Is Justice Possible?, Dr. Paul Nyquist, the president of the Moody Bible Institute, writes this, Justice is the application of God's righteous moral standards to the conduct of man. Certainly, Shechem's actions were despicable and deserving of punishment, no doubt. However, the justice administered by Simeon and Levi was void of God's righteous moral standards. You see, Simeon and Levi were seeking revenge. They were seeking to get even. They were certainly not looking to uphold God's holy righteousness, which is, according to Nyquist, the purpose of justice. Unfortunately, you and I, we live in a country, we live in a time that we know all too well is void, oftentimes, of justice. We watch the news, we hear stories around us, and we may wonder, well, where is the justice in that? And due to the fact that we live in a sinful world, that reality isn't going to change anytime soon. Yet God calls us 
to pursue justice. Micah 6.8, a well-known verse, it says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Simply put, God tells us to act justly. We're called to do what is right and just in the eyes of the Lord. Pursue justice. And not only that, God even calls us as his followers to be the ones who, to administer his justice here on earth. And while we may be imperfect in the, Im, uh, the, the application of justice because of our fallen humanity, this does not relieve us of our duty before God to pursue justice. In other words, we're not always going to get this justice thing right. The opportunities for us or the, the times we do get it right may be few and far between, in fact. There will still be times when the guilty go free and the innocent are punished. On a very personal and practical level, there will still be times when I come into a room at home to screaming and crying children, and I'm not sure which one whose rear end needs justice and righteousness, right? I mean, and as a parent, I'm very aware of the fact that I don't always apply God's justice very well. It's like, you know what? Everybody gets a spanking. Reuben, you too, right? Like, <laughs> Reuben's one, if, yeah, so he doesn't really, one day his, his, it'll come. Uh, but, but we don't even get it right in our own families. Then you talk about society being broken. Our ability to apply justice it's difficult. But again, our inability to do that well doesn't mean we are to stop pursuing it. So what should our response be when justice is needed? After all, God calls us to be salt and light, to make a difference in the world around us. So what should our response be when we see that justice needs to be done or that there are injustices going on all around us? To answer that question, I want to highlight one particular passage. And I, I want us to go ahead and flip over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. And we see Paul address this very topic. You can follow along as I read Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. He writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now catch this, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, God may be looking for us to administer his justice here on earth, but the key word is his. His justice. 
Not mine, not yours. His justice. And so when revenge or an eye for an eye becomes our goal, becomes our motivation, we're no longer responding as we should. In those moments, we are failing to understand God's definition of justice and our role in the process of bringing about his justice. See, we got to understand, ultimately, it's God who ensures that justice will be done. Not us, not our legal system. It's God who ensures that justice will be done. He says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And God's justice may not come in the time or manner that we'd like it to. But it will come. It will come. And so as we study Genesis 34, I think it's safe to say that that Simeon and Levi failed to respond appropriately. They failed to apply the kind of justice that God desires. And as we have opportunity to see that justice is done, we need to make sure that we don't repeat their mistakes. In case you're wondering, if you're curious, there are and there will be consequences when we fail to administer justice as we should. And unfortunately for Simeon and Levi, they know all about that. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob gathers his sons to give them a final blessing. Verse 1 of chapter 49 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around so that I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. And then one by one, he begins to address each of his 12 sons. In verse 5, Jacob turns his attention to Simeon and Levi. But what Jacob has to say is not much of a blessing. We see that starting in verse 5. Allow me to read that for us. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me, en- let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. You see, their failure to administer godly justice all the way back in Genesis 34 leads to words of condemnation rather than blessing. And not only that, the consequences of their actions would have lasting effects upon entering the promised land the tribe of Levi received tiny villages to call their own rather than a large region like everybody else. And during the desert wanderings and exodus, after the Israelites have made their way out from under Egyptian rule, during that period of wandering in the desert, the tribe of Simeon dwindles in number. They became the smallest tribe and were eventually assimilated into the tribe of Judah, Judah, ceasing to exist. 
Thus, Jacob's words in verse 7 of chapter 49, I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel, were fulfilled some 400 plus years later. And if all that weren't enough, Simeon and Levi missed their opportunity to be identified as the father of the royal line and the one through whom the future messianic king of Israel would come. In other words, Simeon or Levi could have been the tribe from which Jesus would eventually come. Instead, though, they were passed over in favor of their brother Judah, who was next in line. Considering the consequences they received, it's probably safe to assume that Simeon and Levi regretted the decision to take matters into their own hands back in Genesis 34. Missing out on Jesus, the Messiah, coming from your own tribe, your direct bloodline, is not something you quickly forget. Somewhat of a silly illustration, right? If, if the Seahawks fans are still not over the fact that they didn't give the ball to Marshawn Lynch on the goal line of the Super Bowl, right? If they're still upset about that, which is trivial, just imagine the heartache and the turmoil for Simeon and Levi having missed out on this opportunity to be the tribe from which Jesus would come. And now there's somewhat of an afterthought. Imagine all the what if and what could have been scenarios that ran through their minds as they listened to their father Jacob talk to Judah about this man, this one who was to come from the tribe of Judah. And how the scepter, this, this ruling capability, would never leave the tribe of Judah. We hear all this and we may wonder, well, well, why were Simeon and Levi given such stiff consequences? I mean, where's the grace? And the Bible doesn't necessarily spell that out for us. But if I had to guess, my answer would be somewhat ironic. I think the reason they were give, given stiff consequences is because God is just. If only they remembered that before taking matters into their own hands and applying justice however they saw fit. Hopefully we begin to see justice is a big deal to God. Isaiah 61.8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. Justice is near and dear to the heart of God. And so with that in mind, where is there a need for justice in your own life? Or where might God be calling you to administer his justice on behalf of others? You see, God doesn't give us the option of turning a blind eye to injustice. So what is it that he's calling you to do? What is it that he's calling us to do? Where can you help apply God's righteous moral standards to the conduct of man? As you and I see the lack of justice, whether in your own life or in the lives of those around us, it, it can be discouraging, for sure. You may even be led to ask the same question Dr. Nyquist asks. Is 
justice possible. As I close, allow me to read a paragraph from his book. And my hope is that it will not only be a dose of truth, but a source of encouragement for all of us as we consider our God-given responsibility to pursue the justice that God loves here on earth. Dr. Nyquist writes, We must admit that despite our best efforts, true justice will never be fully realized in this age. More injustice will unfortunately occur, and we need to correctly calibrate our expectations. In spite of this, there is hope. A different day is coming. God gives us the encouraging and comforting promise that one day, when the just king rules this world, justice will be perfectly and consistently enforced on the earth. And while we wait for that day, we bear the responsibility and privilege to pursue justice to the best of our ability in our community, nation, and world. To that I simply say, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to experiencing your true justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for for your word. God, even stories like this where initially we think, I don't even know what to do with that. God, you, you make it clear that there's truth for us in every aspect of your word. Something for us to apply, something for us to learn about who you are, what you expect from us, God, and how we should go about living our lives. Today it's justice, God, and your heart for justice. And we see so much injustice around us in our day and age. God, as followers of you, may we not turn a blind eye. May we consider what is the role you want us to play in applying your justice here, the justice that you love. And may it not be ours, but may it be your justice, God, as we trust in you and rely on you to bring that about. And we pray that it will be for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.